in the book of Isaiah. Uh, before we do, just, just a short announcement. Um, so tonight we'll be in Isaiah. Next week, we're going to put our usual through the Bible on hold and have a night just for worship um, and for prayer. And so that will be September 1st, next Sunday, and then we'll return to finish off the book of Isaiah on September 8th. Uh, so keep that in mind. But as for tonight, we pick up in Isaiah chapter 58. We've been talking about the fact that uh, the first half of Isaiah um, focuses extensively on the time uh, that is concurrent with Isaiah's life, with short and brief glimpses way out into the future. Whereas the uh, second half of the book, after chapter 40 and on, uh, looks primarily beyond Isaiah's life with, with brief touch points with his contemporary times. Uh, and we'll see both of those things tonight. Um, but also, since we've moved past the hinge of the book, this prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, so um, thoroughly fulfilled by Jesus and his crucifixion, we are also going to see a lot of what uh, we would call in biblical terms consummation, as in the end part of, uh, of God's plan, as in the final reality of where all things are pointed. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll hear some similar imagery, uh, in fact, some direct allusions uh, to Isaiah from the book of Revelation, both tonight and then we finish, when we finish up um, on September 8th. Um, but first, as we pick up in chapter 58, we're in a section of which there are many in Isaiah, uh, that is focusing on sin and judgment. And so notice how chapter 58 opens here. Verse 1 says, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. One of the primary purposes of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Micah, Daniel, one of their primary purposes is to call Israel back into repentance. And so we see here that same calling, the invitation to return to God, to turn away from sin. Um, but notice here uh, what's going on looks on the ground level, on the surface level, a whole lot like business as usual. It looks like worship is continuing. In fact, notice what it says in verse 2, yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. And so he says in, in their actions, they're present, they're coming to the temple, they're giving their offerings, uh, they express with their mouths a desire to know all my ways, but that's as if they were a righteous people, when in actuality they're not. He continues, he says, uh, as if they were a righteous nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And then here we have the voice of the people. We have their complaint. And we've seen this model before in Isaiah, uh, where Isaiah voices the complaints of the people to God, their laments, 
and then he unearths or pulls back the veil and shows what the real problem is. Uh, The problem at the time that Isaiah is speaking of here is that the people feel like they're going through all the motions of what God requires, and yet life is a struggle. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, God had promised that if Israel was faithful, then they would receive the blessings of the covenant, uh, which include a fruitfulness of land uh, and in pregnancy uh, and a protection from their enemies. Uh, But if you read 2 Kings... During the life of Isaiah, you find a pretty different story. You find lots of difficulty without and within, uh, a good deal of struggle. And so here, here they've taken on fasting, and they criticize God, and they say, we're fasting. You call for us to stand before you uh, and fast. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Now, the only fast that's required in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel is the Day of Atonement. By the time we get to Jesus, the Pharisees had added on much more regular days of fasting, but the only one required in the Scripture was the Day of Atonement. Unlike the other scheduled feasts in the Jewish calendar, uh, only the Day of Atonement was a day of contrition. It was a day of humility instead of a day of partying and rejoicing. And so it included fasting. And so remember, the whole point of the Day of Atonement is for Israel to recognize their sins and to humbly ask for forgiveness. Uh, And then there was a sacrificial system and the blood of the goat and the goat that was driven out into the wilderness would bear the sins of Israel and they would be forgiven. That's how the festival is supposed to work. But maybe in the weeks following the Day of Atonement, life is still hard. The struggle is still real. And so they say, what's the point? We've done everything you've asked. Verse uh, here, he says, behold, God speaking, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. So they're going through the religious motions. They're enduring the rituals. But it says here, in actuality, their fast Um, is still focused on their own pleasures and oppressing all of their workers. In fact, it's kind of easy to understand how that might be the case, right? Like the rest of the holy days of Israel, the Day of Atonement was a day where you could do no work. It was a Sabbath day. And so it seems here that Israel, to make up for lost hours, is keeping their servants and their slaves or foreigners on the clock and having a religious day while maybe making their, uh, their servants do double duty so that no time was lost. Okay? And so there's a hypocrisy here. In fact, if you go back and you read the Old Testament law um, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, uh, any Sabbath day was required not just to be a Sabbath for devout Jewish people, but for their household servants. And any foreigners dwelling in the land, it was supposed to be a holiday for everyone. And so here we find in their fasting hypocrisy. The whole point of the Day of Atonement is to put first and foremost and seriously your sins and the brokenness between you and God in relationship. Prioritize that, but they're doing double duty. They're making sure the gears keep turning. In fact, notice verse 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. 
Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Now, it may be that verse 4 is just talking about what happens when you don't eat, right? We have a nation of hangry people, and they're bickering and fighting all day long because they haven't eaten. More likely here, it's not talking about what happens during the fast, but before and after the fast. You see, God doesn't just require confession, not just mea culpa, my bad God, this is my sin, but repentance, a turning away from sin. And so it's not good enough for Israel to just put their sins on hold, to, to worship God on Sunday, but Monday through Friday go back to wickedness. And so he's once again criticizing their hypocrisy here. He says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Verse 5, is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now, in all honesty, there's nothing wrong with that list. All of those things are the normal external manifestations of mourning. Putting on sackcloth and, donning, sackcloth and donning ashes is the same thing you do if you were grieving a loved one who had died. And so it's an expression externally of grief. God is not criticizing those externalities here, just the hollowness of them, because they do not fit with what's going on at the heart level. As Isaiah has said earlier, these people confess me with their mouths, but their heart is far from me, and that's manifest in their actions. And so he reinterprets the fast here to make it holistic. He doesn't say stop avoiding food. He doesn't say stop with the sackcloth and ashes, stop with the humility, but he says add to that a holistic fast. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Now, interestingly enough, remember here this idea of a fast and the idea of a Sabbath, of a holy day of rest, are intertwined. Jesus makes a similar argument as he walks into a synagogue and he finds a woman who has been bound by the devil for decades and is bent over and cannot stand upright. And as Jesus often does in the, uh, uh, in the presence of suffering, he frees the woman. He touches her. He heals her. She stands up straight for the first time in many, many years. But because he does it on the Sabbath, he's criticized by the religious leaders because they see healing, even if it's miraculous healing, as being a form of work and therefore incongruent with the command to do no work on the Sabbath. And Jesus basically says, but don't you understand that freedom is the purpose of the Sabbath? Why wouldn't you be all about taking this woman's burden, the fact that she's bent over and bound and setting her free as being a total epitome of what the Sabbath is supposed to be? Okay, in fact, one of the reasons that's given in honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, this one in the book of Deuteronomy in Exodus, the Sabbath is rooted in creation, for God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. But in Deuteronomy, it's rooted in redemption, for you were slaves in Egypt, but God has set you free. And so the Sabbath is an expression of the fact that they are free. They don't have to work seven days a week for their masters. Instead, it's an expression of the fact that they are free 
And so Jesus says freedom is what the Sabbath means. In the same way here, a true fast would be associated with true repentance, the abandonment of wickedness, the setting free, the breaking of every yoke. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Now, that's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Fasting with feeding. But that's what he says. A true fast would be to take those who have nothing to eat and to feed them. Okay? Not just to withhold the food you have, but to share it with those who have none. He says, uh, bring the homeless into your home when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He says, you want to experience my protection, my presence, my blessings? Then there must be true repentance. There must be the pursuit of justice. And just a reminder here, as, as beautiful as this passage is about God's chosen fast and the breaking of bonds, it begins with the breaking of our own bonds. It begins with dealing with our own injustice. It begins with us. And so the idea here is not just that Israel needs to become crusaders against worldwide injustice, but they, they need to stop being part of the problem. That they need to give up their own oppressive behavior and wickedness. He says, then everything that you're longing for, everything that you're asking for, then it will be, you will have my protection. Verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and, and he will say, here I am. And so they say, God, you're not listening. You're not hearing us. And he says, that's because there's sin in the midst. He says, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry. Now that's strong language, isn't it? That's not just if you pour a glass for the hungry, but if you pour yourself out for the hungry. There's an occasion I love where Paul is talking uh, to the church in Philippi. In fact, the whole letter that we know as Philippians is basically a thank you letter that Paul has written to the church because they are financially supporting him. And so in chapter 4, he kind of leans into explicitly referencing their gift. And one of the things he says, I think is so beautiful, he says, I'm grateful that you have participated in my suffering, that you've entered into fellowship with my suffering. He doesn't say, I'm grateful that you've alleviated my suffering. He says that the Philippians gave in such a way that they suffered as well. They gave to such a degree that they also were in need. They also were lacking. That's a different thing, isn't it? In the same way here, pouring yourself out for the hungry is clearly an expression of heavy cost, right? He continues to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Now we're going to see that idea of darkness, gloom, and light run through the chapters tonight. So just stick a pen in that and keep an eye on it. Uh, because there it is, and then notice verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, 
the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Now, it may be that when these passages were, uh, were spoken, before they were recorded, it may be that when Isaiah gave these oracles was in the days that we found much of Isaiah to be revolving around when King Hezekiah is surrounded by the Assyrian army, when they get all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, when they've trounced the soldiers throughout Judea and conquered much, and so they've left much destruction behind. And he says, you want to know why the walls are broken down? You want to know why the cities are in ruin? He says, it's because of your sin. But as soon as there's repentance, you will be known as the rebuilders, the restorers. Joel picks up on this idea. Joel uh, speaks during a time where Israel is experiencing a significant discipline from God in the form of locusts. And he says that it's so bad that one type of locust came and ate, and then what was left behind them was eaten by another type. And what little was left behind them was eaten by another type. Okay? He names so many types of locusts in that passage, we have a hard time translating them distinctly. Okay? It's been a hard time. And you would expect that he would come with a message of comfort, but he actually says God is just getting started. And he says the next consequence that comes won't be little locusts eating your food, but the great locusts of Babylon, the soldiers of an enemy army. And he says, yet even still, right now if you will repent, it'll all be over. And then he says one of the most amazing things. He says, even still if you repent, God can restore the years the locust has eaten. He can take the consequences that have been building up the last few years as the uh, supplies and the back, uh, back stock of food is running down and make it up completely, abundantly, erase the difficulty from your past entirely. God is totally capable of resetting the board. And he says the same thing here. He says the cities will be rebuilt if you repent. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Again, we see that connection between Sabbath and between fasting. You see, the Sabbath was a unique day, one of seven, that was set aside not just for rest, but for worship. It was to be a day set aside apart from the other six and devoted to God, but again, they were just going through the motions. It wasn't a day of worship, uh, but instead was merely a day of idleness, a day of pleasure. But he says, if you do this, finishing here at the end of the chapter, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, notice, this is significantly a, a, a passage of judgment. God is saying, here's what's going on. He gives the diagnosis, uh, and he also presents the cure, and he does so willingly. He says here, I am ready at the gates to bless you abundantly, to bring things back, but there must be repentance. 59 pushes deeper into this reality. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He says the problem is not with God's ability, 
Not his ability to reach out and deliver you from your enemies. Not his ability to hear your prayers. He says the problem is found elsewhere, verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suits justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and they give birth to iniquity. Okay, and so notice here there's violence. There's false witness. In fact, if you were to study this passage in juxtaposition with the Ten Commandments, you'd see a lot of cross-referencing going on here in these ideas. Um, and so the ideas here of lies and muttering wickedness and unjust suits is, again, the idea of false witness. It's, it's um, court cases that are made up to take advantage of people. Uh, it's that type of stuff. Okay. And then he moves on to imagery. Verse 5, they hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from that uh, one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. And so here he pictures them as, uh, you know, as being spiders and venomous snakes and doing damage in such a way. In fact, he points out, coming back to the idea of spiders, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Okay, and so he says, if you're going to devise evil plans, it's like I'll clothe you in the webs that you make. Uh, you know, what's that um, Shakespeare line? Um, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we something to deceive. I don't remember the word. Huh? Practice to deceive? It works for me. But the problem there, and the one that Shakespeare is getting at, is the same problem here, that we cannot be that without having nothing left to clothe ourselves but in our own works. And so he says here, uh, their works are the works of iniquity and their deeds of violence in their hands. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. And so this is a relatively long and thorough and damning list of criticism that God lays out here. And it's easy to shake our head at Israel, but it's interesting that many of the sentences we read here in Isaiah 59 are the ones that Paul chooses not just to condemn Israel, but to condemn all humanity. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is trying to make the case that no one can find salvation on their own because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, to prove that point, he basically puts together a laundry list of rapid-fire verses from the Old Testament. The majority of them are from the Psalms, but quite a few of them are found right here in Isaiah 59. Uh, and again, I want you to remember here that Paul is not talking about a particular church or a particular people group, but he is instead trying to make the case that we all need a Savior, 
And so in doing so, he says this in chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And here's his rapid-fire quotes. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Okay, now notice that all of the verses he selects there, including one from Isaiah, uh, are all inclusive language. The words he uses are no one, which leaves no extras, right? And all, which means everyone. Listen to it again. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Okay? And so what he's saying here is that the problem in humanity is holistically for all humanity. Okay? He says that we are all fallen. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in the first half of these quotations, he emphasizes that all have fallen. But in the second half here, he turns, and again, drawing one of the verses from Isaiah and a few from other places, here he turns and uh, notice what he does here. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. That's from Isaiah. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what does he do? What organizing principle does he use in the second set of quotations? They're all metaphorically about the body, right? It says the problems in the mouth, the problems in the tongue, the problems with their feet, their hands are quick, right? Even their paths are full of wickedness. In other words, in the second half here, he doesn't just say all are fallen, he says we're all thoroughly fallen. It's as if he gives us a head-to-toe diagnosis, okay? And so it's easy to read back in Isaiah uh, and uh, shake our heads uh, along and want to put ourselves both in the shoes of the righteous, and therefore in the shoes of judgment. But Paul proves that that doesn't work, because we find ourselves all condemned uh, in, in our inability to keep God's word. As we've seen, that's one of the great tensions of the book of Isaiah. God keeps pointing out that sin leads to death and to consequence and judgment and promising simultaneously that he's going to bring Israel to ultimate and final blessing. But that doesn't come through Israel getting their rear in gear, figuring things out, you know, straightening themselves out through them reforming. It comes through this suffering servant, this one who Paul is just about to present in Romans as being the offering for sin, the one who sets things right. And so here, Israel finds themselves in the day of Isaiah, guess what, in need of exactly what it is that God is planning of providing in Jesus Christ. Picking up in verse 9, back in Isaiah 59, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, 
but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Why? Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Now, did you notice what changed in the passage here? Okay, in the first half of Isaiah 59, the pronoun is about them. They are this way. They've done these things. But here, Isaiah enters in and he begins to confess, we have done these things. Okay, he enters in and what he's doing here is interceding for the people. What the Bible means when it talks about confession, uh, in fact, this is what the Greek word in the New Testament that we translate confess literally means. It means to agree. It means to assent, to say, yes, that's right, that's who I am, that's what I've done. And so Isaiah does that here, and he's doing it in the form of a lament. He basically says, amen. You're right, God, this is our condition. Okay, and so he continues here, he says, uh, verse 13, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Notice there that Isaiah puts the problem of our tongue in our hearts. Okay. We're very swift to say, I didn't mean what I said. But that doesn't really stand up to, way, to uh, the biblical anatomy of sin, if you will. I had a friend, and he used to say, and I've always thought this was great, that the tongue is the dipstick of the heart. Right? Have you ever tested your oil in your car? How do you know how the oil in the engine is doing? You take the dipstick, and you pull it out, and you look at the dipstick. But that's exactly what Jesus says. He says that our words flow out of our hearts. Okay, And so when we say we didn't mean to say that, our tongue is not a slip-up. It's not an accident. It's the full exposure of what's really going on in our hearts. Isaiah says the same thing here. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now, if you just take the time, we'll call this homework, and read just verses 9 through 15, they seem so tremendously contemporary. It sounds so much like where our own nation is right now and our own frustrations and all of the places where we go, why is this even an issue? Why are we still dealing with this problem? And it's easy for us to blame the other political party. It's easy for us to put the criticism uh, in the hands of those who are powerful, but Isaiah for Israel, and I would suggest as an example for all of us, is broader than that. He says there's a direct correlation between our individual sin problem and our societal injustice problem. Okay. Now, notice in verse 15, it continues here. So truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. I actually find quite a bit of relief in that verse. Okay. When we cry out, this world is unjust. When we say, like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? We're rightly reflecting God's desire for justice. He looks on the same things we see, and he feels the same way we do. In fact, verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. 
And so here he sees this nation all in this place, and he can't find anyone who's willing to step in the gap to intercede. Ezekiel makes the same, the same statement, that the Lord was looking for an intercessor who would stand in the gap. You remember um, back in Leviticus, there's this plague rolling through Israel. And there comes a point where Aaron stands between the living and the dead and begins to pray, confess, and intercede for Israel. He, that's where that idea Ezekiel uses of standing in the gap means. Okay. Now, for those of us who are Christians tonight, there's a tremendously good promise in this reality because when God looks on our behalf for an intercessor, he always finds one. Because the Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us in constant prayerful communion with God on our behalf. Okay? But here, apart from Jesus, removed from that, he can't even find someone to intercede. And then notice the punchline here in verse 16, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He could find none righteous, so he's the righteousness. He could find no one to intercede, so he brings salvation. In fact, look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to his deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. And so notice here, he's the bringer of salvation, specifically in the form of justice. That's why it's not just salvation on the front end. It's not just righteousness, but also vengeance and zeal and also justice, okay? But it is no mistake that when Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, encourages us to fight the fight of faith and calls us metaphorically to put on our armor, it's this armor. Now, that's actually pretty profound. Here's, here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. He draws this primarily from this passage and another place in Isaiah and one other of the, the prophets. But notice what he says here in Ephesians chapter 6. He says this. He says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which we just read about, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, and so he tells us to put on our armor. But what's so profound is the place where we find this armor is that it's God's armor and not our own. When, when it says in Ephesians to put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. When we put on the helmet of salvation, that's not us bringing salvation, but the fact that it's been brought for us. Now, let me tie that to what he says here in Isaiah. The same armor that God dons against sin, and remember, that's us, against sinners, he now freely gives us, and it works on our behalf. It's a pretty profound idea that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, where he says our great protection is not you know, something we build for ourselves, not something we, um, you know, hammer together of our own righteousness, 
Not the webs of our righteousness like we saw earlier in this passage, but the very armor of the Lord himself. In fact, if you've ever wondered what it means to put on the armor in Ephesians, just to be really clear here, read it through again and recognize that all of it's about Jesus and the salvation that he's brought, right? The breastplate, again, is not our righteousness. That's not going to help you stand in the day of difficulty, but the righteousness of Christ. The helmet of salvation, what's going to protect you and give you hope? The fact that you are saved. Okay, the sword of truth, that's the word of God that is full of great and precious promises of what you have available to you in Jesus Christ. In fact, you're supposed to shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace, being both a recipient and a carrier of the message, the good news of what God has done. In other words, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 6 that he says earlier in Ephesians when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ apply the salvation that God has made available for you in Jesus. Okay, back to Isaiah 59, verse 19. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. The sun rises in the east. So again, we see Isaiah saying, who's going to fear the Lord? Everybody from east to west, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Again, surprise ending. We see God rushing in, belted in his armor, ready for battle, but he comes not as a judge, but to those who turn from their transgressions as a savior, as a redeemer, as a protector. Verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So again, it looks beyond the present tense situation, sin and consequence. God promising to bring justice. And he says, but a time is coming when you will keep my word, your children will keep my word, and your children's children will keep my word. Now, if you were with us in the book of 2 Kings, there are times of revival and restoration in Israel. There are good kings mixed in with the bad kings. In fact, Hezekiah is an interesting one because his father was a horrible king and his son was a horrible king, both who turned against the Lord. But that's the problem in, uh, in the book of Kings uh, is it's only a generation, the occasional generation that turns back to the Lord. But God's looking forward to a time here where that faithfulness in Israel will be permanent. And again, we find ourselves asking, how can these things be? Okay. If you go to bed as sinful, rebellious Israel, how is it that you wake up tomorrow morning being anything but sinful, rebellious Israel? But again, remember, we've already seen part of that promise back in Isaiah 53, and we'll see more. Look at the opening of chapter 60, verse 1. So he makes this promise about the future, and then notice what he says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now remember what the problem was in 58 and 59? They were looking for light, but what did they find? Darkness. And here, they don't, you know, conjure up their own fire and make their own light. But God promises again to do something that will drive out the darkness, that will bring in the light. Verse 2, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. 
and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so the idea here is this, this civilization, this kingdom of gloom and doom, and suddenly an invasion of light that's so bright it attracts long-distance nations. We'll see on the horizon the glow and wonder what's going on. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your hearts shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Remember, Isaiah is writing in a time where Israel is threatened by other nations who are going to come in and empty them of wealth, plunder them, right? He says, but there's a reversal coming, a time when wealth from all the nations will flow into Jerusalem. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba shall come. Okay, uh, those three, Midian, Ephah, and Sheba, those are all uh, nomadic people that live in the general area around Israel. Okay, uh, But because they were nomadic, they were known as merchandisers. You remember uh, it's the Midianites who uh, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery to, okay? Because they're traveling merchants. They deal in wares. As they travel, they pick up exotic things and take them to places and sell them there. And so here we see them flowing into Jerusalem with this wealth. In fact, it continues here in verse uh, 6. It says, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. And so not only here do they bring gifts, uh, gold and frankincense you're probably familiar with, right? Those are what the wise men uh, in the book of uh, Luke bring to the born king, Jesus. Um, But also they're going to bring the praises of the Lord. They come not just to celebrate Israel as a people, but to worship the God of Israel. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth should minister to you. These are also nomadic people, okay? And they, like most nomadic people, were not just traveling merchants, but shepherds. And he says, but those flocks are going to be brought to you. They're going to be given to you. In fact, notice this, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house, okay? And so the nations will come, not just with gifts, but also with sacrifices, and those sacrifices will be acceptable, okay? Verse eight, who are those who fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Now remember, Israel is, in the, uh, is on the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? Now, Tarshish doesn't exist anymore, but because of one relatively clear reference in the Psalm, Psalms, we're pretty sure that would be modern-day Spain. Spain would be on the exact opposite coast of the Mediterranean, And so most of the times we find it in the Bible, it's a stand-in for as far away as any Jew could imagine, okay? The other end of the Mediterranean. In fact, remember that when uh, Jonah is called to carry a message to Nineveh, which is east of Israel, he gets on a boat bound for where? Tarshish, as far as he can possibly get away, okay? 
And so here the idea is as they look out over the Mediterranean coast, they'll see all of these boats tacking against the wind back and forth, and they're all coming, bringing again children and wealth. Now, why is there an emphasis on children throughout this whole passage? Remember, for one, uh, that Israel, at this point in their history, are a, uh, an exiled people. They've been carried away into Babylon. They're not living in Israel, but these prophecies at the end of the book are for these people who are experiencing the culmination of their sins, the full, deserving, uh, the full deservation of their sin. Um, and so there's a reversal here. Instead of being carried away to a land you not know, your children will be carried back. But notice two things. One, the idea here is not them just coming back from one nation, the nation of Babylon, but coming back from all the nations. Okay? That's significant because as you move forward in Israel's history, after they return from Babylon and they resettle in the land, they stay there for almost 500 years. The 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament and then about 70 more years, about a generation after the life of Jesus, after years and years of rebelling against Rome, Rome has enough, and the uh, emperor sends the general Titus in, and he flattens Jerusalem, he dismantles the temple, and at that point the Jews are driven out of the land, and of course they didn't return into the land uh, until the 1940s, after World War II. I mean, they were returning before that in the early 1900s with the Zionist movement, but they became a nation again after the 1940s, right? Uh, but that whole period of time, they spread over the known earth. If you know one of our missionaries, Chris Rep, she often goes to Zimbabwe, and she goes with an association that's heart is specifically to find the diasporic Jews, the Jews all over the world, and convey to them both help and healing through medical missions, as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when she goes to Zimbabwe, she goes to Jews living in Zimbabwe, okay? But I would suggest to you that this picture is so pronounced and so profound in Isaiah, it's not just talking about Jewish children scattered through the diaspora across the world returning to Israel but it's actually talking about Gentiles who graft themselves into the family of Abraham. We already saw a picture of this earlier because remember uh, last week, these children who were being brought in were brought to a mother who was widowed, who lost her children in Babylon. And so she says, where are these children? Who, who are these children? Where did they come from? Right? There's a miraculousness to the children that are being brought in here. There's a larger group than just the return of Israel. Again, it's this, uh, this uh, theme we've been seeing in Isaiah that God is going to do salvation not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Do you remember this in Isaiah 49? In Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord is up against the wall. Just like we see in Isaiah 53, it looks like defeat. It looks like discouragement, but the servant says, I won't be discouraged because I trust in the word of the Lord. And then it has this promise. It says, is it too little for you, servant, that I have brought you to bring salvation to your people? He says, I am sending you as a light to the Gentiles. It's a bigger plan. It's a broader plan, and we see that here as well. In fact, notice verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, 
but in my favor I had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now, when you move forward all the way to the book of Revelation, we get a little bit more of understanding of what's going to happen here. When Christ returns and Israel recognizes him as the Messiah they've been waiting for, and when he sits on the throne of Jerusalem, he will rule not just over Israel, but the known world. And we're told in the book of Revelation that the nations will have the option. They can opt in to his worldwide rule or not. But if they don't, there will be consequences. In fact, what it says specifically in another prophet is, is that rain won't fall on their crops. They're going to learn that Jesus is not just a king among kings, but the king of kings. Okay. And so this is the same time that's being talked about here. And we see nations who come and worship the God of Israel and those who reject it. Okay, verse 13 the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the, uh, the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breasts of kings. Now, obviously, that's metaphorical. Kings generally don't have breasts, right? But the idea, again, is this one of provision from the nations, participation in the nations in the, uh, um, in the providing for God's people. He says, and then you shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, it's worth having a short little discussion here and recognize the fact that when we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and many other of the Old Testament prophets, we see promises for the nation of Israel and the people known as the Jews that are yet unfulfilled. And there's a tendency uh, to basically see what God has done in Jesus Christ and his creation of this new people of God called the church as a replacement of Israel. And then uh, what that would look like is to take what we read here and see it as not being literal about the city of Jerusalem or the nation of Israel or the people who are ethnically and religiously Jewish, but about Christians that all of these are spiritualized into a general fulfillment of salvation. The challenge, uh, the challenge with that is, um, well, for one, the challenge with that is faced by Paul in the book of Romans. As we looked at Romans earlier, we saw that, God, or that Paul begins his book by laying out the fact that all need a savior, and that Jesus is the savior of all and he's been provided. He goes on and he says we have access through that, not through our own works, but through faith as it's always been because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he goes on and he talks about the results of our justification, what we have available in Jesus Christ. He talks about how it changes our present tense in chapter six and chapter seven and how it changes our future in chapter eight. 
It's amazing, but in chapter 9, he turns course and he says, what shall we say then? Has God rejected the Jews? And understand why this is significant. Because if God is not faithful in his promises to Israel, how can we trust him to be faithful in the promises he's given us? Paul knows that that's a problem, and he spends three chapters in the book of Romans just answering that claim, and he does it in a couple of ways. He takes the easy answer first, and he says, first off, I'm Jewish. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. All the converts on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, all Jewish, okay? But then he goes on and he says, but now God is showing mercy on the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, and then the promises to Israel will be fulfilled, okay? So we need to watch out with, uh, for what's sometimes called replacement theology, that God only has one people, and they used to be ethnic and national, uh, and now they've been replaced with a universal and unethnic church. No, we live in a parenthetical age, this time of the Gentiles where God is working, but he will return to finish what he started with the Jews. And these promises will be fulfilled, will be fulfilled for them. Okay. Now, one of the reasons, aside from Paul's letter, that I think that this is significant um, and necessary is because... Um, because it's one thing to recognize that the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, can be metaphorical. That they use imagery to convey things uh, in a non-literal fashion uh, is, is real, is true. But if you read closely the promises that are given to Israel, they are not in the realm of general imagery. They are incredibly specific. I'll give you an example. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Now, this is where Jeremiah is talking, like Isaiah does, about what God's going to do in the future, and he uses the language of the new covenant, okay? Jeremiah 31, 31, easy to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so he says, I'm going to do a new thing. And it won't be like the old thing because the old thing had an Achilles heel in the fact that part of the keepers of those covenant were sinful human beings, Israel. So they broke the covenant. They didn't keep it. But, verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Not externally, not on tablets of stone. He's going to do a work internally. He's going to change them from the inside out. Okay. Um, declares the Lord, write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so notice here, he goes on and he says uh, that this is going to take place through forgiveness, right? Not just a people who don't sin, but a people whose sins are forgiven. Now, it's this new covenant that Jesus references 
in the Last Supper he has with his disciples when he takes the cup during Passover and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay? And so we can rightly read this passage and say we are experiencing as Christians the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. We know what it's like to have God write his law, not for us externally, but to change our hearts, to give us the Holy Spirit, which is how Ezekiel talks about the new covenant. Okay? But... Notice as Jeremiah continues on here, yes, he says this is available for Israel and we are experiencing the first fruits of these promises even though we're not Jewish. But notice as he continues here, verse 38, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt from the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Gareb and then shall turn at Goa. And the whole valley of dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the book Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It will not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. So it begins with this big thing that God does, but it ends with uh, geological and geographical references to the city of Jerusalem. And he says the city is going to be rebuilt, and he says it's not just going to be rebuilt, which would be a generic image. Okay. When we get to the book of Revelation, we find this new Jerusalem, and it's a whole lot more than this Jerusalem. That's true. But when he goes on and he says it's going to be rebuilt from this gate to this gate, and the wall will go from this place to this place, and the whole valley up to this will all be dedicated to the Lord, we're getting relatively specific in the details, right? William Newell, who's a commentator on the book of Revelation, says this simply. He says, if the word of God doesn't mean what it says, then who can say what it means? And so generally, when we read the prophets, it's not too hard to determine what is metaphorical and what is literal. Okay, I'll give you one last example, and then I'll get off my pedestal, and we'll move forward. Okay, In the book of Revelation, there's a vision uh, that John sees of 144,000 people, Jews, virgins, all sealed on their foreheads, protected, who go out as witnesses during this period of time called the Great Tribulation. Now, replacement theologians take that passage and they take what follows when, G when John sees another vision, and this one's not of 144,000 Jews, but an innumerable multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they go, look, a surprise. John thinks it's 144,000 Jewish people, but it's actually not Jewish at all, okay? They remove that. The problem is, if you read the passage, it's so stinking specific. It doesn't just say 144,000 Jewish virgins. It says 144,000, 12,000 from the tribe of Dan, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, and it labels all 12 tribes. Why the specificity? Again, I'm okay if we need to interpret that differently, but we can't leave it uninterpreted. We can't just leave it on the floor, and this is why, uh, this is why if you come from churches that are replacement theologian type churches uh, that have no place for the future promises for Israel, they won't spend a lot of time in Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or sometimes the book of Revelation as a whole, because there's nothing there for us except overly specified illustrations that don't really mean anything in our life, but maybe, maybe the promises God has given are faithful and true and significant, they're just not for us. And so, there's a both and. Both 
the new heavens and the new earth, and a new created Jerusalem. Both God ruling and reigning in heaven forevermore and a thousand-year reign ruling from Jerusalem as Jesus demonstrates for this world what true justice looks like. Okay. Okay. Over. Isaiah. Okay. Um, we are in verse 15. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I'll make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. And instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stone, iron. In other words, the city's going to be rebuilt with a resource upgrade. Okay? Where you would find bronze, it's now gold. And where you would find stone, it's now bronze. Interestingly enough, if you go and visit Jerusalem today, they have a decor code. And so all of the buildings in Jerusalem are required to have the same alabaster white treatment on the walls. And it's pretty impacting when you see it all together. How much more when the design code is gold, okay? And so the idea here is of a complete transition I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness, which is literally just the replacement of slavery with justice. Verse 18, violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Why? Because you won't need them for military reasons anymore, and so now they're just decorative, okay? Verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, notice there, he makes two statements that kind of have attention to them. He says, no more sun and moon, and then he says, your sun and moon will never set. Okay. The idea here is one of surpassing light, right? But it's also one that's picked up again in the book of Revelation. And so if you turn to Revelation 21, as John is hearing the promise of what God's going to do when he sets all things right, he records it in the language of Isaiah. And so he says here in um, chapter 21, verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Sound familiar? It's exactly what we were reading about in Isaiah. Okay. Now, I reference that not just because it's in John's mind, but because I want to remind you that when you read the book of Revelation, it is the, uh, the most well-connected book in the entire Bible. It references more passages of Scripture from more books in the Bible than any other book in the Bible, okay? Um, and so when we read Revelation, we have to read it with our whole Bible, okay? Coming back to Isaiah now, okay? Uh, and then he finally says, your Lord will be your everlasting light, and the tail end of 20 says, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. Notice that. I'm not just going to save you from your enemies, I'm going to transform you. What was the problem in chapter 58? Why do you not have righteousness in the land? Because you're not righteous. Why are you experiencing oppression? Because you're an oppressor. 
But God is going to do such a work here that from the inside out, he'll bring about righteousness, he'll get rid of sin in the camp, and so everything will be uh, both changed and protected. Your people, verse 21, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Okay. And so God says what he's going to do here will be in such a way that he gets the credit, he gets the glory. Why is Israel staying still and staying put? Not because they were such good people, but because God has done something so truly good that he gets the glory. Verse 22, the least shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Which is just a way of saying, you can, you can bank on that. Chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, do you notice how verse 3 ends with what we just read in chapter 60? God says, I'm going to plant in Israel, and I will be glorified. And here, uh, here, this person speaks and says, the Spirit has appointed me to bring that about. Okay. So again, we find the tension, okay, Israel's in, uh, worthy of judgment. God promises that he's going to set all right and make them righteous. How? Well, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to accomplish that, this voice says in Isaiah. And again, we find the servant of the Lord. Okay? In fact, if you compare this with the other passages where the servant is named, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, you'll see quite a lot of overlap between this passage and the things we already know. But this passage is especially significant because it's this passage in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he's invited to address his hometown synagogue. He's handed the scroll in Isaiah, and he unrolls it to the daily reading, or the weekly assigned reading of the Jewish calendar, and it's this passage. And he reads it aloud, and he sits down to teach, and this is the totality of his sermon. Today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And recognize that for what it is. Jesus basically says, I'm the one you've been waiting for, Israel. I'm the one who God promised would send. I'm the one who is anointed by the Spirit to do these things. Okay. Now, Jesus also does something that is hermeneutically significant, significant in terms of how we interpret the Bible. And here's what he does. Let's read the passage again. Look at the things that this anointed one is going to do. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that reference in verse 2 is to the year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament, after, uh, after six years, the seventh year was to be a, a, a year-long Sabbath, okay, where they didn't work the ground, but they lived off of what God had provided in the sixth year. And after seven cycles 
of seven Sabbath years. So after the 49th year, the 50th year was again a year to lay the ground fallow, and it was also a year when all your personal debts would be dissolved. When any land that you had had to sell, because remember land was part of the inheritance of individual Israels, uh, Israelites would be returned. It was an economic resetting. When he sp- speaks here of proclaiming Um, the uh, year of the Lord's favor, he's evoking the concept of jubilee. Okay. Of the abolishing of debts, of the setting right, of the beginning again. But here's what's interesting. This is what Jesus does. Okay, and we don't have time to turn there and prove it. You can take my word for it and you can do it as homework. But in Luke chapter four, Jesus reads all the way to that sentence to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he stops and he sits and he teaches. Now, why is that surprising? Because look what follows right after that in verse 2. What's the next word? And. Jesus stops mid-sentence in reading Isaiah's prophecy and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus makes a division in this passage that we can't see. He makes a distinction, a separation between what he's doing in the days of Jesus' ministry on earth and what he will do at a later part. This is being fulfilled in your hearing. This, not yet. In fact, notice what it is. It's not just the year of the Lord's favor, but also the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Now, we look at that and we go, well, okay, so recognizing vengeance, maybe that makes sense. Because the New Testament says, first, Jesus came humbly, bringing salvation, offering a free gift, but he will return for justice. He will return to set all things right. He will return to put to end the enemies of God. But what about the rest of that? Is that not promises that we experience now that those who mourn uh, will be given a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit? Practically, as followers of Christ, you know that's a yes but. Yes, we experience joy in the Christian life, but not in its fullness. Yes, we find tears wiped away in Jesus Christ, but the promise that he'll wipe away every tear is still yet to come. Theologians call this the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Sometimes when Jesus talks, he says the kingdom of God is here. And other times he says when the kingdom of God comes. Okay, And so, to put it differently... What God does in Jesus Christ is already inaugurated in the coming of Christ in our Gospels. But it will be consummated when he returns. And so the fulfillment of these things, these are things we still long for. These are things we still need. Your suffering you experience in this life is part of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all creation groaning, longing for the redemption of the sons of God. Okay? We're still in this now, but not yet, waiting for Jesus to finish what he started. Okay? Now, why do I bring up that little uh, hermeneutical precision that Jesus makes here? Not just because he makes a distinction between his first coming and second coming, but also because if we read in Isaiah, we'd never know that that difference was there. Right? We'd never know that division was appropriate. 
Jesus does something there that is insightful and illuminating that we wouldn't have been able to figure out by studying the passage on its own. And that is not the only place where we find that in the New Testament. Okay. Um, here's the thing. When we read through the prophets in the Old Testament especially, it, begins, it, uh, it can be hard to determine where one prophecy or oracle begins and ends and another one begins and ends. It can be hard to know when Isaiah is talking about this time versus that time or maybe this other time in between. We don't always have chronological markers. Very rarely, in fact, never does the Bible say in the year 2017, right? That's just not part of how prophecy works. Instead, we find visions that are complex and interrelated. And like this one, the servant is going to do the whole thing in two acts. Okay. So one of the ways that I think is easy to think about this is consider yourself, consider the prophet like someone who's standing, looking out over the valleys of time, okay? And in the distance, they see two hills and they describe them both. But as time moves towards those hills, we discover that the hill behind is bigger and also further away. On the horizon, they look like they were parallel, but they're actually quite distant, okay? The term we sometimes use for this is prophetic telescoping, that we can't always tell the distance between the things we find in the prophets, okay? Now, Last piece that I want to kind of just stick in your ears, uh, and this will be for next week. We'll see John do the same thing with part of Isaiah when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. That he'll take two things that are simultaneous and side by side, and he'll actually make a distinction between them. In fact, I would suggest to you that one of the values of the book of Revelation is it gives you the chronology that is missing in the other prophets. As he assembles everything God's promised and puts it in order of how it's all going to go down, okay? But that revelation, just like Jesus's, is helpful to us, okay? We read the scripture through the scripture. We interpret the Bible with the help of the Bible. And especially as Jesus comes and he takes the things that were mysterious and hidden and he makes them revealed, okay? He connects dots that we can't connect on our own. That's what he does with this passage. Continuing here in verse 5, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Now remember, Israel operates with the Levitical priesthood, a particular tribe of the 12 tribes who operate as their priests. But ideally, they were called to be a holy nation and collectively a kingdom of priests. Here they come to fulfill that, okay? Operating like priests for the nations. Now, Isaiah doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say he's going to make all of the Jews priests, but look at what he says in the very end of the book of chapter 66, 21. For context, uh, listen to what he says in verse 20, because this will sound real familiar. It's just repeating what we've been reading. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Right? That's what we've been reading about all night. And he says, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. He basically says there's going to be a giant worldwide festival. And in the same way that all of Israel came to Jerusalem to worship, now the whole world comes bearing these children. But notice verse 21, and some of them 
also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For a Jew, 700 years before the coming of Jesus, to speak of Gentile priests, and not just priests, not just generic priests, but Levitical priests, is a profound statement. Okay. And that's another thing we see in this tail end of Isaiah is the inclusiveness of it gets bigger than we would expect, just like we saw with the eunuch. Deuteronomy says anyone whose testicles are crushed or has been castrated or is not allowed in the temple, but after the servant song of Isaiah 53, he says to the eunuch, don't call yourself a dry tree. You will have a name in my house, Right? In the same way here, it's not just that people come in and Israel becomes the priests, but also Gentiles become the priests. God's promise to Abraham is becoming true. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless those descendants. And the other nations that bless you will be blessed. And the other nations that curse you will be cursed. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Read Galatians 2, 3, and 4, and you'll see that God has grafted us into the family of Abraham. In fact, he's adopted us into God's own family. And so now we're part and parcel of God's promises to Abraham. Okay. But here we see this central but universal worship uh, in Jerusalem that is worldwide and international. Uh, finishing off verse 6, you shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejo uh, rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess the double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For the Lord loves, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They shall be an offspring the Lord has blessed. So notice again, we see it pressing beyond the boundaries of natural birth. And again, that goes all the way back to Abraham. God calls Abraham out of his tent in the middle of the night. He says, look at the stars. If you can number the stars, you can number your descendants. But we find out here in Isaiah that these children are brought from international places and grafted into this family. That's why they become so significantly large. That's how the promise to Abraham is fulfilled, not just with his Jewish descendants, but his descendants by faith, like you and me. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Okay, again, we find in Isaiah, he lays out these oracles and then he just has this ejaculatory praise where he just is overwhelmed and he begins to worship. But notice he does it in the language of what we've been reading. He says, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Do you remember the last time we saw that imagery? God was clothing himself in these garments, but Isaiah recognizes what God's going to do here. Not just put on the articles of war and bring justice, but significantly clothe people in his own righteousness, in his own salvation. He says here, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what's sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Okay. When we garden, 
we can plant a seed. We can make sure it's in a place where it gets sun. We can fertilize it. We can water it. But there's still something significantly not us that happens. Okay? Why does a seed respond to water and sprout out of the ground? Because that's what a seed does. He says, just like that, because this is a work of God, it will happen. God's going to water it, and it's going to sprout out of the ground. This is what God's going to do. Now, I was hoping to finish chapter 62 because it's such a great one. Because it's such a great one, I don't want to rush it. And so we'll stop there for the night, and we'll pick up there and finish the book. Not next week when we'll have a worship night, but on the 8th. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these beautiful promises. We thank you, Lord, that we find ourselves like Israel caught in the tension of a people who long for righteousness and yet are the greatest defender, who find unrighteousness, not out there and attacking us, but in here. The war we fight is not external, Lord, but a civil war. And yet you have provided a way to clothe us in your salvation and your righteousness in Jesus Christ. And you will do something that's so universal that people will come from the ends of the earth to worship and praise you, Lord. And we can't get much further from Jerusalem than we are right here in Seattle. And so we just raise our hands and we recognize that we have become your children, that we rejoice in the light of nations and the one who was promised that we are the ones who now worship shoulder to shoulder with the Jews, the God, the Holy One of Israel, grafted in to the tree of blessing, adopted into the family of Abraham. And you find our sacrifices and our praises acceptable. And you find our presence in your city acceptable, Lord, because you have made us righteous. But we do find ourselves in that second half of the opening of chapter 61 tonight, Lord, with mourning and with ashes, with struggle. We relate with what Paul says when he says, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I do are the things I don't want to do. Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we live in expectation and longing and even groaning, Lord, that you would finish what you have begun in us. That you would deliver us not just from the consequence of sin, which we already have in Jesus Christ, but from the presence of sin. That you would make us righteous. And so we pray with Isaiah as he worships. We praise you now for what you will do. And we pray and we ask, come Lord Jesus. Finish what you started. For you are worthy. And we can trust your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.